You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast from the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Any legal podcast has disclaimers and ours is no exception. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys here moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Elisa, another one of your moderators. Today, Yvette is out, so we're joined by the chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security Advisory Committee. Wow, that's long. I hope our listeners can suffer that. An honorary millennial and a guy who knows something about almost every national security law issue, Mr. Harvey Rishikoff. Thank you. Thank you. It's very sweet. Very sweet of you. Um, As you know, uh, the ABA Standing Committee is comprised of really seasoned national security lawyers in uh, in a variety of national security law practices, but our committee really covers the waterfront, and it's always a pleasure to be here. And I may be wrong, but I think we're working on our 217th podcast, and it's very extraordinary (laughs) to have such extraordinary guests today here today. It is. It might be our 250th. Or was it 300? (laughs) I've lost track. But anyway, the committee has spent the last 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed about the hottest topics in national security law today. The committee presents non-biased information from a variety of reliable sources. And um, as you know, it's pretty hard to find um, an objective set of opinions given the current system. But I think the committee prides itself on being able to give all views in a bipartisan way. That is true. But if you like your own views repeated back to you in fear, taking in new information, we cannot help. But if you want to grow and learn facts from our amazing guests and get real information through links to Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast, then you are clearly at the right listing post. And the pun is intended. (laughs) So let's get to it. Okay. Uh, Today we continue our series on private national security law with a look at the role of counsel to communications companies. In this case, one of the largest companies providing telecommunication services and more is Verizon. And our guest today is Craig Silliman, and that is how you pronounce it, the Executive <laughs> Vice President of Public Policy and General Counsel for Verizon. Craig, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks, uh, thanks for having me. You know, I've listened to a couple of podcasts, and I had no idea that you guys recorded from inside a skiff at uh, NSA headquarters. I, I would have thought all this recording equipment was a security issue. You guys clearly have clout. We're hey, ver- is that the pizza delivery guy? <laughs> well, we're, we're just a simple bunch of lawyers, as you know, swinging from vine to vine in the jungle of the law. Um, but really, Craig, uh, you are currently the executive vice president of public policy and general counsel, responsible for leading the company's public policy, legal, regulatory, government affairs, and security groups. Before, before assuming your current position, which we believe is in January 2015, you were Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Affairs with responsibility for Verizon's global public policy, federal and state legislative affairs, federal regulatory affairs, strategic alliances, national security, 
privacy and corporate citizenship. Were there any other attorneys, or are you the only person at Verizon <laughs> who handles this variety of jobs, which I think you can do, and I thought I was busy. But well, well they, I incredible. actually spent all day just reading out my title, and then that was the end of the day because it was too long. So I, I would like to represent you. You need a raise. Whatever you're getting is not enough for the amount Cat of work you're bonus. doing. Yeah, exactly. All right. Importantly, though, he's also a dad, a bicyclist. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, an aspiring farmer. You want to be successful at that. It can go yes. bad. Uh, an aspiring sommelier, and apparently oh. a lot might want a lot more. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, so what Elisa said is actually a lot more important and interesting than what uh, Harvey said. But I realize now I actually need to be an aspiring musician because with Harvey here, for you listeners out there, you've listened to that cool and funky music at the outset, and you probably thought it was recorded. Harvey Rishikoff is sitting here at a synthesizer, playing it live. Listen to it at the end again. It's a, he is a man of many talents. I appreciate that. Very few people know that, so um, and for good reason. Um, but I think what I'd like to say is that um, we're really, really ecstatic to have you here today. And I think what we'd like to begin with is the, a serious issue is the protection of the U.S. critical infrastructure, which is, as you know, among one of the most important missions of national security. And you play a big role as counsel in advising the company on a whole range of these issues that Verizon is getting involved in. So we'd like to start, if we can, with your thoughts. And in particular, we'd like to talk about Verizon's role as a supplier. So I think uh, it's a good place to start. And I think when I, when I think about how we as a company, as Verizon, interact with the national security space, I really kind of put it into five categories. I think of us as a supplier. I think about transactions we do. I think about us as an evidence holder. We're a victim of attacks, and we can be a vector of attacks. You know, and starting as a supplier then on the first of those, you know, many ways companies have been suppliers to governments forever, right? Back to the earliest types of goods that governments needed. We obviously provide communication services to the government, but in this day and age, obviously so much of our lives, our businesses, and the government work on communication services. So you think about the continuity of government issues, you think about the types of issues that arose um, as far as the criticality of communications. You think back to some of the early Arab Spring, you think about the Egyptian uh, military moving to shut down the wireless networks to control communications. So a lot of interesting issues. There are lots of companies that have always provided goods and services to governments. But in today's world, for the same reason that communications are so central to all of our lives, communications are incredibly central to the government and the functioning of the government. Right. I often, when I lecture, I refer to you as the ISPs in communications as the queen bees of the system because everything rides on your networks. You are critical both for the public and private sector. But you're involved in a lot of transactions, and you have a role in what we know as CFIUS, which is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. It involves, you're involved with expert controls, you're involved with sanctions. Can you give us a sense of what that means from your perspective as the general counsel? Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned kind of the second category of areas where we as a company interact in the national security arena. It's what I actually think of as all the day-to-day issues. So you mentioned CFIUS. There are all sorts of transactions that may be subject to CFIUS. And you know, right now, as we speak, there's a lot of debate in town here in Washington about where, where, whether CFIUS will be expanded, more transactions will be caught by that. Export control. We move a lot of things around the world, including technology. We deal with a lot of encryption. And so we're constantly looking at things like export control, ITAR, Issues like that, just day in, day out in a global business. You think about mergers and acquisitions. There are all sorts of issues that 
uh, pop up in that. Even just our employees, to the degree that you think of some of the immigration policies and laws and regulations as touching on national security concerns, we have 168,000 employees all around the world. We're moving people in and out of the United States, and so we're dealing with those issues. So just day in, day out, the kind of, I think, is those basic transactional issues, but I don't want to downplay that at all. They're huge uh, importance. You, know, you don't want to trip over sanctions regulations. You don't want to trip over OFAC. So we take them very, very seriously. We spend a lot of time training, and we probably spend more time on those than any others, even though they're not the big picture national security. So you said OFAC and ITAR. You want me to spell out what that is for the listeners? Sure, not? Ab- absolutely. Okay. I was hoping. Oh, you I'm sorry. You were. I thought you. I, I <laughs> you're, said, I thought you're the one who was funding for this. Yes. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. You know, I, I thought we were going to test each other in spelling out uh, four-letter no, words. Part comes later. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so in fact, the Office of Foreign Assets <laughs> Control, which I believe we may have had a podcast in one of the yes. um, correct 230 yes. some odd <laughs> podcasts we've had to date here. Mm-hmm. Um, Could be 400. Yeah. Um, and the ITAR is the International Traffic and Arms Regulations. Mm-hmm. Uh, which deals with kind of higher-end, more military uh, capability uh, export control rules. And so, good point. Thanks for catching me on the, on the acronyms. Because it says arms control for regulations. One wouldn't think Verizon would be involved in that, but you are. Yeah, exactly. And because, you know, sometimes to some frustration, and this is actually a case that many people in the private sector can find themselves frustrated by, you think of these issues, you think of arms control you think of weapons, well, if I'm not making missiles, if I'm not making uh, military equipment, I'm not caught. But particularly encryption is one of the big things that lots and lots of companies deal with and are often surprised by the levels of control around encryption and moving encryption in and out of the country. Some of our network technologies, as we're building out 5G, for example, there's some technology built into 5G that trips some of these export control regulations. So we do watch it very, very carefully. Great. And with a company the size of Verizon, obviously there's a ton of data that's held there, and there's probably a very obvious national security concern with the role of a communication provider in complying with a legal order, like a wiretap order from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, uh, also known as the FISC. Right. So this is you know the third area that we deal with as as an evidence holder, and of course. As far back as there have been governments, governments have been interested in getting access to communication, right? You know, the, the guy in a toga and sandals running with his scroll with the wax seal. Uh, at some point, there was a <laughs> That's government. That's the guy you want to tackle. Yes. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I, I think DOD still uses that. <laughs> That's right, exactly. It's a uh, pneumatic tube. Yes, yes. <laughs> The, uh, somewhere there is someone still unsealing those white seals and, and steaming them back together again. Uh, there are some forms of communications, Harvey, I, I hate to break it to you, that have actually moved beyond that uh, in the modern world, and we have to deal with those as well. So we are a major evidence holder. And so, joking aside, this type of role and in interaction between the private sector and, and government has been around forever. A couple of things that I observe are different now. One is just the scope and scale, the vast amounts of data that are moving through the networks uh, in today's world are absolutely extraordinary. And so to give you some sense of it, we process almost 300,000 subpoenas, court orders, and warrants every year at Verizon. So this is a major operation for us. You know, the other thing that's Wow, uh, I thought you were going to say last week. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> sometimes it feels like that to our team. And we have a couple hundred people that do nothing but this. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, it's a big deal, just the sheer volumes of data that are moving through the networks. You know, the other thing that I would say has changed the last couple of years 
Uh, Nicole, you, you referred to FISA, and I, I still stiffen up a little bit when people say FISA because it wasn't that long ago when if someone asked me about FISA, I would say, I don't know what you're talking about because we couldn't even acknowledge the receipt of a FISA order. That largely changed around June 5th, 2013, mm -hmm. a day which was the day the Snowden revelations broke. Yeah. And I often say we went from before June 5th, 2013, where I couldn't even acknowledge that we knew what such a thing as FISA was, to a couple months later training our entire European sales force and how to talk about FISA mm -hmm. with their customers because the question was coming up so much. And so it's interesting that you know we, we acknowledge openly, we have these conversations and acknowledge that such things uh, exist and that we as a company would receive a FISA order, which we do. But that's a relatively recent, mm -hmm. recent development and there's a lot more public discussion about the fact that these are received, how companies are dealing with it. And we have to think about it, therefore, in terms of not just what is the law, but what are the reputational issues associated with it. We have to assume that even things that are highly classified may at some point become public, and what are the ramifications for that. So we live in a very different world uh, as a company and the ramifications of what we do as an evidence holder interacting with government than we did just a few short years ago. Yeah, actually fascinating, but you should know as a child I was given a signet ring for my wax communications, so uh, <laughs> they still are a viable way. Um, I think but that, that was AD 112, though, Harvey, so it, you know. I, I, let, let's just say dinosaurs still walked the earth when I was doing this. Um, the other sort of interesting sort of position you have as counsel is that Verizon is a particularly juicy target. It's a juicy target for cyber attacks, and it's also a juicy target, you mentioned, Mr. Snowden, of potential insider threats. Yeah. So how do you, as the council and Verizon, handle the sort of double-headed uh, dragon that faces you? Yeah, so we spend a lot of time thinking about security. I spend a lot of time with our uh, CISO, our Chief Information Security Officer. We spend a lot of time with our board talking about how we're managing risk. Uh, of course, any good CISO will tell you today there is no such thing as completely eliminating risk, uh, but you do everything you can to, to tighten it down, and it's never something you win, right? It's a, it's a constant battle. You're in an arms race uh, with the bad guys constantly. So you're thinking about the threats coming in from outside, and as you note, insider threats are a huge issue. We as Verizon publish something every year that is a compilation of all the security breaches that have taken place and we, we bring in data from hundreds of law enforcement and, and private entities all around the world, it's not just us. And it's fascinating, you kind of break it down uh, and what you see is certain categories that 90% of the breaches account for certain things that are generally in the realm of cyber hygiene, basic yeah. hygiene. Having said that, the thing we spend a lot of time thinking about now is the rise of the nation-state attack or the attack that's in some way affiliated or sponsored by the nation-state. And these, while they're the minority, you are dealing with very sophisticated actors. And one of the things that I think is evolving in terms of the engagement between the U.S. government and private sector is really beginning to have a model where we work together in partnership and a recognition that when you're facing a threat from a nation state, no company, and frankly, most governments don't have the resources to withstand that threat. I often say, we've been in a realm for a couple of years where these things would happen, and then it was just a question of what the fine would be against the company. And, I, and I'm not asking for forgiveness if a company is simply negligent, right? If a ship is sitting in port and it just sinks because it was manufactured in a, in a negligent way, 
someone should be held accountable. But if a cargo ship's sailing up the east coast of the United States and is sunk by a Russian sub, I don't think we would be having congressional hearings about why the owner didn't harden the hull against a Russian sub attack. We'd be treating this as a national security attack on the United States. And I think we're beginning to evolve. And one of the first times I saw that was actually in the DOJ announcements on the indictments and the Yahoo breach, mm -hmm. where DOJ stood up and said, no company should be expected to face this alone. And I thought that was a fantastic recognition and a beginning to work together as government and private sectors to say, we're seeing a new level of sophistication and depth of attack that we need to work together on. Just as a footnote, so that's, uh, we're not going to be blaming the victim, as you would exactly. say. We're trying to understand. And I, just for the record, you should note that I actively wait for the Verizon report to come out. I'm a huge reader, and now that we no longer have a Harry Potter series, we're not getting this. You've replaced for me. That's and the more they come out, the more uh, happy I would be. That is and great I, to know. Yeah, I speak for many. I, I will. I will let the team know, and we'll make sure we build in even more narrative drama. In yeah, the, I, maybe a little romance in the middle, just to keep keep you part. It's those spectacular. You don't either. I just love the data. It's spectacular. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm glad it is. Yeah, a, it's great. Aside, it is a great resource, and I'm not. We don't. We're not making money yeah, off this. I, it's just we saw this as a service of. Of compiling it, we have a lot of great partners, yeah. and there's a lot of great data and lessons learned from that. I commend it to everyone. All right. So part of what gives the United States its global authority is the size and resiliency of its economy. And in fact, under some definitions of critical infrastructure, the economy is actually part of the critical infrastructure, including things like the banking system. But Verizon's a really large company, and in that vein, I think we all have an interest in seeing some of our bigger companies survive in the sense that they promote the health of the United States economy. So how do you treat that aspect of your role, sort of the protection of the size and girth? It's easy to say, oh, it's a big company, you know, it must be venal, it's so large. On the other hand, it employs an enormous number of people. It's a vital part of our economy, and as, as we noticed during the Super Bowl, it provides all the communications that you mentioned in the very beginning, <laughs> um, providing all the support. So can you talk about that, just the size of the company? Yeah. and the Absolutely. Although I, I, I have to register an objection to the word girth. I, I, <laughs> we, we, just, we just have big bones, Lisa. We're, it's a glandular we're, thing. It, it's, it, we're, we're, it's mainly muscle weight, I would like to say. Big we're, eaters. You're yes. a big bone company from Saskatoon, we, we, as we, we say. We are. So there's no girth there. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. all, it's yeah. all yeah. muscle. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. I, I, just want, I just want to state that. I have the, the same problem with that confusion, so yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm yeah. sure comments on your girth are equally unwelcome. Gosh, I'm glad I used that word. So, okay. So getting past the, uh, the girth insults, you raise actually a, a good and serious point. We do take this responsibility very seriously, and you, you made a reference to our Super Bowl commercial. So for those of you who didn't see it, we ran a Super Bowl commercial uh, that was really, I, I actually thought it was really kind of heart-wrenching. But we went out, and we, we really had been so moved by some of the natural disasters that have hit all over the country, California, Florida, Texas, Puerto Rico. Uh, over the last couple of months and the amazing efforts by first responders. So we went out and found some of the victims and the first responders who had in, had some role in saving them, carrying them out of burning buildings, uh, carrying them through floods, and we put them back together. And it, it was wonderful, I thought. And part of what we were saying is we want to talk about how the communications infrastructure really enables who we are as humans. We actually call it our human ability campaign because it's what we do is how we communicate, how we talk to each other. In this context, it's first responders, but it also does send a message about the importance of this infrastructure 
in what first responders do, but what all we, we all do. Right? It enables our lives, it enables our personal lives, it enables our work, and we think that's incredibly important. You alluded to other things. We take very seriously. We, we have about 170,000 employees. We insure, from a health insurance perspective, about 800,000 people. When you look at families of those employees, retirees and their families, that is an enormous responsibility of people who are relying on us. The jobs we create. Um, we, and I'll do a shout out to our competitor, AT&T, are year after year the top two investors of capital in this country. We invest over $17 billion a year in capital and infrastructure year in, year out. So you think about the number of jobs that flow down through that, local contractors, our suppliers. Um, so it's, it's huge. And I think you know, it's sometimes lost. You said it, and I think it's exactly right. The history of a nation's ability to project force and influence is the history of its economic might, right? When we were talking about Japan's rise, it was the rise of their economic might. The UK, in many ways, rose and declined on their economic might. The rise of China is a story of the rise of their economic might. This country is powerful because we have a powerful economy, and that enables us to project force, project influence around the world, and do all the things that the country does. So I think it's fundamental as far as a part of our national security, but then the jobs, the infrastructure, if we can't continue to invest in that infrastructure, then all the things that are built on top of it, all the internet economy, all the efficiencies that all of the businesses in our country rely upon aren't there. So we take it very seriously. We will continue to run the company in a way that we hope is uh, allows us to be sustainable, but also allows all these benefits. So it's, it's something we talk a lot about and take very seriously. You did put the town crier out of business, though. I just want to point that out. Somebody <laughs> well, lost a job somewhere. Yes, there, there, Hundreds, there, there, thousand are, there are some quick aside historical footnote. You know who else we used to hire 100,000 of were the people, the, they were almost all women, who plugged the, uh, switchboard. The, the switchboard operators. There was actually a bill that was introduced in the <laughs> Senate in 1932 to prohibit auto-dialed phones wow. in the Senate because the senators felt that it would be so disruptive for them to have to dial their own digits on the telephones. And so they tried to actually prevent the switch uh, to uh, rotary dial phones and moving away from the switchboards. Technology sometimes moves in fits and starts, and there are those who will slow it down every bit of the way. But I think generally more jobs get created than get destroyed along the way. Well, thank you. For, but thanks for that illusion, uh, Greg. But let's shift a little bit uh, gears here to get to an interesting topic, which deals with the Supreme Court. And I, we know uh, because of our relationship and our extraordinary amount of researchers we have working for us, the team of researchers, <laughs> that you attended the famous Carpenter case. And the Carpenter case for our listeners where the question presented to the court was, does the warrantless search and seizure of all phone records, including locations and movements, violate the Fourth Amendment? And you're at the center of the, what we would know as the privacy debate and how we're going to actually understand how we protect privacy in the 21st century concerning business records and the third-party doctrine. And it also raised the encryption issue. So you're at the heart of what we understand as one of the most central issues in national security law of Fourth Amendment and privacy. So 
What were your thoughts on, on the case? Yeah. If you could predict the outcome, we'd appreciate <laughs> oh, that too. Wow, boy, you're, you're really, so there's a lot to unpack that yeah, you okay. threw. I mean, first I just have to note, now that I know I'm being surveilled by the ABA and my move is not, I guess I have another question, which is do I have a reasonable expectation of privacy right. in my location vis-a-vis -vis <laughs> ABA? So well, we, we assume consent. So <laughs> okay, yeah. so well, that's an interesting, so we have a new legal theory, the Harvey Rishkoff assumed consent. consent. There's explicit consent and implicit yeah. consent, now there's the assumed consent. Thank you for that. You're this welcome. This is good. The Rishikoff Doctrine. Okay. We've, uh, we've, you heard it here first, folks. Okay. So, so let's unpack this a little bit. So the Carpenter case, um, which I did go to to hear yeah. the oral arguments because it was so interesting and, and tied in so many things we do. So quick background. Carpenter was arrested back in, in 2011 for eight armed robberies, and he was actually fingered by an accomplice. But the FBI uh, obtained 127 days of location information from his wireless carrier, and that allowed them to corroborate the accomplice as far as his location during the entire time that the uh, eight armed robberies uh, took place in Carpenter, in fact, was convicted on that. So his lawyers uh, challenged the fact that this being the location information was collected without a warrant. So quick aside, before I go into kind of unpacking a little bit of this, you mentioned third-party doctrine, we should probably explain that. Why are we interested in this? So this was location information collected from his wireless carrier. And I mentioned before, we process almost 300,000 subpoenas, court orders, warrants a year. About 40,000 of those a year are for location information. So this comes as a lot. And then we're watching the technology. And we thought we had a voice here because I mentioned that he was arrested in 2011. So you think back at that time. This is early days of the smartphone. This is before we really got moved heavily into 4G. The evolution of the network since then have meant that the network has what we call densified. So there are far more smaller antennas, which means your location can actually be located with far more specificity. And because you're using a smartphone, you're actually giving far more data points on your location on a given yeah. year. And so you're looking at an issue, a snapshot in time, but we're looking at the evolution of the technology and saying, this is getting the, both the volume and the precision of the location information that's being collected is growing. And so we thought it was an interesting issue to tee up. We filed an amicus brief in the case. So the, the basic question they tee up is, uh, you know, does the Fourth Amendment require the government to obtain a warrant to get the cell phone location? And this really tied into something that you referred to, it, the third-party doctrine. So a lot of the listeners will know what that is, but quickly... The third-party doctrine fundamentally says that you have no reasonable expectation of privacy in information about yourself that you have turned over to a third party. And it rises out of a couple cases in the 70s, predominantly Smith v. Maryland, where the suspect was dialing numbers and the court held that because he was turning over the dial digits to the telephone company by dialing them, he had turned them over to a third party, therefore he had no reasonable expectation of privacy. So the court is looking at this now and saying, okay, the analog is your device is pinging the network constantly, and it has to do that because we have to know where you are so we can route your calls and data to you. So your, call, your device is constantly telling the network where it is which gives your location information. So the question is, you're turning over your location to the carrier, therefore you have no reasonable expectation of privacy. So this was interesting, and it was interesting watching the court because it's clear that several of the justices are struggling a little bit with this and looking perhaps to find a way to in some way shift the law on this. 
But I will say as an aside, this is not a great case for the court to deal with. This is a policy question that really Congress needs to deal with. This is a tough here, one here. for the court. Yeah. So the question, though, is how does the court deal with this if they want to do it? And they've signaled a little bit of this, uh, Justice Sotomayor, in a recent case, the Jones case, in the concurring opinion, made some reference to revisiting the third-party doctrine. The question is, how do you revisit it? And I, I kind of think about a couple different vectors, several of which were argued in the case. You know, one is temporal. You could say, well, it's okay to collect it for a certain amount of time without a warrant, but not too long. That feels messy to me. Again, you might be able to legislate that. It's really hard to say you have a reasonable expectation of privacy for a certain amount of time, but not for another. It just feels like that's a really tough, bright line to draw for a court. And it feels like something the court generally doesn't like to do. You know, a second thing that you could do is around sensitivity, right? You could say certain types of data are more sensitive than others. And there was some argument about this, some discussion back and forth on this. And the problem is it gets a little subjective, right? Is your bank records more or less sensitive than your location information? And is the court in a position to, to make that decision? Something that actually wasn't discussed in the oral argument, probably because it's not a good idea, but I'll throw it out anyway, <laughs> is could you tie something to volition, right? So, you know, could you say, I know when I'm dialing digits that I'm, I'm giving this to the, to the, to the uh, carrier, but the fact that my device is just connecting and giving my location information, did I really know that? Now, this gets a little messy, too, because we all sign terms of service and we turn information over. And we should be clear, a lot of what's at stake at this is as we turn more and more of our lives over to third parties, our photos are stored in the cloud, our bank records, everything is stored out there electronically. So less and less of your personal information do you have reasonable expectation of privacy about. That's what this case is about. You turn a lot over, you may not be thinking about it, but you are consenting in some way. So it's not clear if there's something there. Unless you really go back and maybe revisit what the third party doctrine is about. And the way we've kind of come to see it is, it's an objective standard. If you turn something over to a third party, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Do we revisit that and say, actually what the third party doctrine really means is, it's an indicia of how you feel and treat your information. Therefore, by turning over that information to a third party, I'm indicating that I don't have an expectation of privacy. That may have been true when it was only dial digit, but may not be true in all cases. So maybe it becomes a factor, but not dispositive objectively. Um, that's not a prediction. I, I really honestly have no idea how the court will rule. It was clear that several of the justices are struggling with whether to sort of adjust the paradigm a little bit, but really hard they're having trouble seeing how to get there, which may mean, unfortunately, may get a slightly kludgy decision. Ultimately, I think this, the answer is this needs to go to Congress. And by the way, your attendance of the argument is what we call the plain view doctrine. So the question is, you guys have a real challenge in keeping up with the changing technological landscape. You're at the forefront. And you also have to interact with government officials who always are not keeping up to date with the latest innovation. And they have a big impact because they're a deeply regulated yep. industry. So how do you how do you deal with that problem as the general counsel going dealing with the government and given the technology change? Sure, you're, you're absolutely right. It's one of the things that makes my job so much fun is that you're always having to learn. The technology is always changing, therefore the issues are changing. And we have to do that even within the company on my own team, making sure we're refreshing skill sets uh, so that we have the ability to keep up with the new issues. 
you know, as far as interaction with the government, it's all over the map. We have parts of the government that are unbelievably technically sophisticated, and it's a great back and forth. And there are obviously specialized agencies like the FCC that this is what they do for a living. There are parts of the national security apparatus that are incredibly sophisticated. But you're right, there are others where you really have to start from the beginning, and particularly the physical infrastructure. A lot of people tend to think of the whole internet ecosystem is sort of happening in this kind of ethereal <laughs> realm. They almost literally think of it as a cloud, you know, so that it happens there. It with, isn't? With that. Wow, yes. that is a news burst right here. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you. Wow. I'll, I'll, draw, I'll draw pictures you? of ducks and bunnies after this explain <laughs> wow. it. Um, but it really is the, and, and it is difficult because what can happen is people can begin getting ahead of themselves on policy implications without actually understanding the underlying technology and things that really don't make sense. But, you know, that's part of the job and that's part of the interaction. You just make sure you get out there. And again, I will say, I, I don't want this in any way sound disparaging because there are parts of the government that are on, constantly educating other parts of the government in incredibly helpful ways. And so it's a, it's a good exchange. So in the Argo of millennials, yes. uh, one of the things we do at the ABA is help the next generation coming up. So let's say, hypothetically, yes. you're a young lawyer, I would say, in the Valley in San Francisco, yes. and you're trying to make a name for yourself in the national security practice. And you also advise startups. Yes. That's one of your parts of your job. And some of the clients run companies that offer internet-based phone and other data services. Mm -hmm. So what would you say the lawyer should be thinking about in terms of national security issues? What should they be worried about? What advice would you give them? And what experience should you think they should gain before they are able to give effective advice to their clients? What would you advise? So this is you. I'm giving advice to you. As a millennial. Your role as a millennial. Yes. Okay, good. So, okay. So, Which is easy for you to actually yes, think exactly. about. Okay, so, so listeners, take this journey with me. So yeah, the exactly. visual image is Harvey Rishkoff. He's got long hair and a man bun. He's wearing Birkenstocks. Um, so, Birkenstock cloths. And I'm an open book for you. You, you yes, are, I'm indeed. A, a tabula rasa. So, tabula rasa. So, dude. <laughs> mind dude, if I call dude, you dude? No, I would okay. prefer it. So, dude. Uh, here's my <laughs> advice, actually, is I want you to think about this. You're, you're in the Valley. You're in San Francisco, in this yeah. case. So, the epicenter of law in the national security realm is, of course, D.C., and you've got a lot of people here. Look, you've got the Harvey Rishikoffs and the Bob Litts and the John Carlins and the Stuart Beckers and the Raj Days and a dozen others in town that have spent decades doing this. And so my advice to you would be, in this particular context of national security, what my advice often is to lawyers starting the career, which is don't try and win on someone else's field of advantage. Your field of advantage is not to outdo the lawyers in D.C. who have decades of experience in national security law, your experience is you are young, you are in San Francisco, so time is on your side, and you're at the epicenter of technology. Skate to where the puck is going, not where it is today. Look at where technology is moving, look at market trends. You probably know what those are. If they're not, there are a bunch of futurists writing about it. Figure out what the hot issues are going to be five years from now. Stake out your position now. That's how you outflank the seasoned experts because you're playing to the fact that you have time to move with the technology and grow into that and get ahead of it. And you're right at the epicenter where you can be at the cutting edge of the technology. That's where I think you create your competitive advantage. 
do it on the field where you have the competitive advantage, not where other people do. All right. So you have had an amazing career, really. And uh, I know you've got kids of your own who are looking at the future and trying to decide what it holds for them right now. The landscape looks pretty uncertain, I think, right now. So what general advice would you give to young lawyers who are listening to this podcast who have looked for years at what appeared to be a contracting uh, legal market? So, um, so I'm going I'm to switch my metaphors okay. now. I'm going to do what I call reading the rapids. And here's what I mean by this. If you've ever been whitewater rafting or canoeing, you know that the way you ride the rapids is entirely dictated by where you enter the rapids. Because once you get in the rapids, the force of the current is stronger than you are. You cannot possibly paddle against it. So you need to read them and understand where you want to enter them so you can ride them successfully. So what do I mean by that? Look at market trends. What industries are growing? What are shrinking? Even within the company, I often joke, I could have been the best video rental lawyer on the planet in 1994, and I wouldn't have a job because that industry doesn't exist anymore. You know, it's been a great career in a company like Verizon because you had the internet, you had wireless, now we have all these other internet companies that are growing. And when things are growing, they provide opportunities for you. So at a macro level, look at the demographics, look at the market trends, look at the industrial trends, what's growing and going to create more opportunity. And then within a given environment, what's moving? If you're working for a boss, you who is going to be in that job for 20 years, you may be better than that person at their job, but you're not going to get their job if they're not going anywhere. Maybe you need to make a lateral move. Read the rapids of where people are moving. Maybe you want to move laterally because you know a position is going to open up in four years and you can build the skill set to become that person's successor. So take charge of your own destiny. Some things are going to be more powerful than you are, but if you get in the right currents, they will take you a long, long way. If you're paddling against them, it's going to be a lot harder. Wow. Well, thank you. I guess the theory is you have to learn to catch the wave, to use the metaphor. Um, which find is, the shoot, right? Which That's is right. clearly yes. you've done in your career. So uh, you've followed your advice. Yes. We are just ecstatic that you were able to find time to join us. We know how busy you are. And as always, I love hearing your thoughts, your perspective, and your, your collective wisdom over the years, given who you are and what you've done. And we very much hope you'll come back and join us appropriately. And for our listeners, you even created a new word of the week, which is densification, which I used to refer to as my students, but now I realize there's a technical side to the actual densification. Yes, I know. And I won't say who those students were, but um, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time. Well, it's thanks so much. Harvey, it's always a pleasure uh, to, to talk with you. I, and Elisa and, and Nicole, great to be here. Thanks so much. Yes. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again next week for our next episode. So I think as always, if you're out there thinking about how much time you want to practice law in this area, you're going to spend a little bit of time in a SCIF, which we know is a sensitive compartmentalized information facility, uh, in which you have no access to any listening devices or any technology we currently have. But like me, it will soon become like a second home, and you will enjoy your time spent there of what you do in order to help the republic. And you're trying to figure out if any of your camera's phone functions is currently being accessed by all 30 of your gaming apps, and in what country the information being collected is ending up. And you want to be the lawyer who takes on that issue. But uh, what you do realize in the long run 
is that hopefully we'll be moving into the 21st century and we'll be protecting the values that you articulated that we think are so important. Then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We hope to see you at our next event. Physically, I mean. The next committee breakfast event will be March 9th in Washington, D.C., where we will hear from National Counterintelligence and Security Center Director William Evanina. And we love it when you actually physically show up to our breakfasts or lunches or conferences because... Though we love social media and virtual reality, there's nothing better than the true human touch of reaching out and seeing someone and talking to them. So please check us out at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity or follow us on our Twitter at ABA NatSec. And there we have our one of our new recent publications on public-private partnerships on how to protect the critical infrastructure and we hope you will be able to peruse this and get smarter on the issue. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. And Harvey, thanks for the awesome assist. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack. <laughs>